We will be returning to uh, the applicatory portion of Ephesians probably, um, probably the second week of August. This morning I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, the fifth chapter. We will begin reading at verse 21, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Let's bow our hearts and heads in prayer. Within our hearts, Heavenly Father, we kneel before you and acknowledge your greatness, and we thank you for your tender mercies, which are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And as we come to this text, we pray that we may learn more about who Jesus is, that our faith in Jesus as believers will be strengthened, that you will help us to understand how this text applies to life, but also that those who are among us today who really do not understand the Bible, do not understand the gospel, do not know who Jesus is, that those hearts would be savingly wrought upon that you would grant saving faith, and that some would walk from this place today believing in Jesus who did not believe before. And we ask that your blessing will be upon the reading and exposition of your word, for we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, this beautiful portion of Mark's gospel. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Who is Jesus? That's the great question that Mark's gospel is addressing. That question has been addressed by Mark, especially through a number of miracles leading up to this miracle. In a sequence of miracles, he has shown the unparalleled authority of Jesus, who speaks and wind and waves obey him. Demons tremble before him. And in this narrative, even death responds to his voice. There's a fascinating technique, literarily, that is found here, inserting one narrative inside another, building suspense. Of course, it happened this way, but it also is a great piece of literature. And this arresting combination of two narratives is bound together by the human tragedy of a woman who had suffered for 12 long years and a girl whose life was cut short at the age of 12 years. So let's look at the narrative together. And we begin, first of all, with 12 years of tragic suffering. Now, as we come to the narrative, we find that a synagogue official, probably an elder named Jairus, fell at Jesus' feet and pled that he would come and help his daughter. It uses the diminutive, actually, my little daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death, literally is at the end. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. What relief. Jesus went with him. There's now hope for my daughter, undoubtedly he thought. In verse 24, we are told that there was a great crowd of people that thronged the Lord Jesus. Jesus could hardly move because of the crowd And there was a woman, a woman who had experienced bleeding for 12 long years. She had suffered under the primitive methods of many doctors. She had spent all of her resources, and she only grew worse. And we have immediate sympathy for this woman, don't we? Uh, Here she is. She's a pathetic picture. The debilitation, the weakness, the discouragement, the depression, the poverty. Now, I found in Vincent's word studies a very interesting thing. I found from uh, the Talmud, which is only a little while after this period, uh, a reference to how uh, treatments of a flow of blood were to be uh, handled by doctors. Uh, I think when I read this to you, you'll be glad that medical procedures have improved somewhat since those days. This is how a woman would be treated with a flow of blood. Take of the gum of Alexandria the weight of Azuzi, which is a fractional silver coin, and of alum the same, and crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. 
If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. (laughs) But if that do no good, take a handful of cumin, a kind of fennel, a handful of crocus, and a handful of fenugreek, another kind of fennel. Let these be boiled in wine and give them to her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If these do no good, other doses over ten in number are prescribed. Among them this, let them dig seven ditches in which let them burn some cuttings of vines, not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let them lead her away from the ditch and let her sit down over that and let them remove her from that and make her sit down over another, saying to her at each remove, arise from thy flux." So you can see this woman had spent all she had and she only grew worse. This was the desperate condition of this poor woman. But not only had she suffered long, she also suffered socially. You will recall the passage that Christopher Cleveland read to us from Leviticus 15 this morning. Later on, an entire tractate would be written on this in the Mishnah. She remained ceremonially unclean as long as the bleeding lasted. She was shunned by society, and she had no religious privileges. Her desperate search for a cure is not only because she's sick, but because she is isolated socially and religiously. In hearing about Jesus, she determined simply to touch the garment. She came up behind him determined, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, it doesn't seem that she's seeking a relationship with Jesus. Her faith is real faith, but very weak and almost quasi-magical. But she will touch the Lord Jesus' garments, and she believes that she will be healed. But she'll do it unobtrusively so that no one knows that she is there mixed in this great throng. In verse 29, we read, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease So she must have said to herself, within, I'm healed. (laughs) All these years I've been suffering, now I'm healed, having touched Jesus. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now there's something really remarkable here. The gospel, as we see, turns the world's standards on its head. Women were without social status in this society, and now Jesus sets aside what people would consider this greater commitment for this, for this great leader in the synagogue to go and to heal his daughter and to help this woman for whom most people cared, undoubtedly cared nothing. And it also shows that he's in sovereign control, as we will see. So Jesus asks, who touched me? He would draw the woman out. He would know this woman, show herself to him. The disciples were saying, the crowd's so large, how can you ask the question, who touched you? But you see, this power that went out was not some impersonal power like some shot of electricity. It was the personal power of the personal God, and Jesus would know this person who touched him. And here we see a touch of human sympathy, our Lord Jesus really sympathizing with this needy woman. In verse 33, she came trembling with fear. Why? Because she had touched Jesus and made him unclean? Because she was fearing a rebuke? Oh, perhaps, but I think the 
real reason is because a miracle had been wrought in her body. And she's coming into the strange and mysterious presence of the one whose power had done what no one else could do. So in verse 34, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Someone is well translated, Be whole of thy plague, continue whole and well. Notice how Jesus reassures her. No one else in the Gospels, to my memory, is ever called Thugater by the Lord Jesus, daughter, but this woman. Some find it remarkable that Jesus does not rebuke her and finds true faith here. After all, as we said, her faith was more like a quasi-magical sort of thing. But this is crucial, I think, and very instructive to us. Her faith healed her, not faith in the abstract, but the object of her faith. It's not the strength of her faith, it is the object of her faith that ultimately heals. And you may be a person who is becoming very interested in Jesus. And God usually brings people to him very gradually in stages. The gospel calls upon you to totally commit yourself at once, but your knowledge will not be all at once, it will be gradual. And this woman's faith at this point is just in Jesus' ability to heal. She doesn't know anything else really about him. But faith is usually a matter of small but real beginnings and growth. And this is what Jesus sees in this woman, true, genuine faith. And so my counsel to you is not to dwell on your faith at all, but to dwell on Jesus, the object of faith. I like sometimes to say that before coming to the Lord Jesus by faith is like standing on the outside of some great cathedral and you see the stained glass windows from without. You really don't know what the pictures are. You don't know what the windows are representing. But believing in Christ transports you on the inside. And as the light increases and shines through, the brilliant pictures take on life and luster. Well, that's what's happening, I think, with this woman. And so he says to her, go in peace. Though a usual expression, it takes on a whole new meaning when Jesus speaks it, because the shalom of God is now upon her. And ultimately, for us, it is the shalom of God that comes through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And if I realize that God is at peace with me through what Jesus has done, I can live at peace on the inside. And so in verse 35 we read, While he was still speaking, there came from the house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. So he delayed. He took time to look around and to find the woman. In the meantime, Jairus' daughter has died. While they were still speaking, there came one from the house, someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And so the suspense builds, doesn't it? The text doesn't focus really on Jairus' thought, but you can imagine what Jairus thought. The text really is concerned with the authority of Jesus, and Jesus is not distressed. He is not deterred by the message. Jesus, folks, Jesus is in charge. And he calls for faith in verse 36. And he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And now we turn to the sad condition of Jairus' daughter who had, and this is the second thing, 
12 short years of life. 12 short years of life. The woman had suffered long over 12 years. The little girl, only 12 short years of life. And in verse 36 we read, but overhearing what they said, that is when the person came and said, your daughter has died, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, do not fear, only believe. Now, hadn't Jairus just heard Jesus tell the woman who had been healed that her faith saved her? Yes, but there's a large difference in stopping a flow of blood, healing a woman, and raising the dead. Only believe. And it's a present imperative in the Greek text. Go on believing. In other words, go on believing just as you did when you first came to me, Jairus. And Jesus took Peter and James and John with him. You know, they later would see the transfiguration and the glory of Jesus displayed in the transfiguration. And now they will see an anticipation of Jesus' own resurrection and the raising of this girl. Every incident you read in the Gospels, every miracle in particular is suffused with the light of Jesus' resurrection. And when they arrived, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. I'm sure you've noticed as you watch news items from the East, especially funerals, how hopeless they seem. The weeping, the wailing, the grief. Well, that's what we have here. No doubt family and friends were mourning, but it's almost certain that they had already followed upon the custom of having hired mourners come to add to the weeping and the wailing. There is no honest doubt. These people laughed at the Lord Jesus when he came. You see, why are you making a commotion and weeping, he asked. The child is not dead but sleeping. Well, they thought that was funny. And they laughed at the Lord Jesus. It's an imperfect tense, which means they kept up the laughter. They jeered him. They were just keeping on laughing at what Jesus said. And then Jesus took the ones who were laughing and he put them outside. A.T. Robertson says, the presence of some people will ruin the atmosphere for spiritual work. So he put them outside. Miracles are not performed to convince skeptics. Sin is the ultimate illusion maker. He took the father, the mother, Peter, James, and John with him to the girl, and the girl was dead. You must understand that. The girl was dead. When Jesus said the child is not dead but sleeping, he was expressing his authority over death. Because sleeping people wake up at the voice of Jesus. He was expressing his authority over death. Cranfield says this, and it's quite beautiful. For Mark, no doubt, the words had also a general significance as a reminder to Christians that death is not the last word, but a sleep from which Christ will wake us up at the last day. And therefore, a rebuke to those who, in the presence of death, behave as those who have no hope. And then we read in verse 41, 
Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And if it is true, as I think is probable, that Mark's gospel is the recording of Peter's preaching, then Peter repeated the very words of Jesus. And you are reading here the very words that Jesus spoke to this girl when he took her by the hand. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Are you? Listen, it is as, as, as easy for Jesus to raise the dead as it is to arouse a sleeping child. He took her by the hand, he gave a word of command, and everyone is completely astonished because even the dead, even the dead obey Jesus' voice. The wind and the waves obey his voice, the demons obey his voice. Sickness obeys his voice, and the dead obey the voice of Jesus. Because nothing is impossible for Jesus, this kind of authority raises again the question, who is this? So Jesus would keep the details as private as possible, and in the miracle, the light of his deity is shining through. He is God incarnate. And after the resurrection, there will be complete understanding of this miracle and who it was that raised Jairus' daughter. And then there's a vivid human detail. Jesus told told them, give her something to eat. She was about 12 years old. She got up, give her something to eat. Now that's the narrative. I think it's one of the most beautiful narratives in the Gospels. I think it's a lovely narrative. Do you? Well, let's think for a few moments, thirdly, about what the meaning of this miracle is, what the meaning of the miracles in the Gospels are, how this miracle relates to faith. So, what is the meaning of the miracles and how does it relate, how do they relate to faith? The miracles are revelation of Jesus and his kingdom. They show that the saving reign of the Lord has begun among us. The miracles point to Christ as the cosmic ruler, the one who came to reverse the effects of the fall and to restore all things, to recreate, to renew, to restore, to bring all things to blessed and wondrous consummation. And this restoration is first hinted at by the theme of uncleanness that you see here and you see actually in many places in Mark's gospel. We're confronted with this theme of uncleanness and the need for recreation and how Christ does this when the unclean spirits among the tombs are cast out by Jesus. And then they are cast into pigs, unclean animals. Uncleanness of a menstrual disorder here in this passage. The uncleanness of a a corpse because you're ceremonially unclean if you touch a dead body. And this prepares for the way in chapter 7 where uncleanness is dealt with even more fully, but also ultimately for the cross where Jesus Christ came and took the greatest uncleanness. Not ceremonial uncleanness. He took my sin and yours. 
For not only did Jesus touch a dead little girl and share in her uncleanness, the greatest uncleanness is that of our sin that Jesus took when he shed his blood on the cross and removed our guilt and took our death. But the restoration that Jesus will bring in this fallen world is also pointed at by the theme of resurrection that we find here. For even though this was a resuscitation to earthly life, the raising of Jairus' daughter also takes us to the end of Mark where Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of God. And it is that miracle of miracles that suffuses its light on the healing of this woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter. And it is that miracle of miracles, the resurrection of Jesus, which suffuses its life also into our lives today. For if death was the end, we would all be hopeless, we would be helpless, we would be lost, we would be undone, and death would be the end, death in hell forever. And we would remain helplessly in the grip of the evil one. But death is not the end. There is only life beyond the grave for the people of God, greater promise for resurrection to come, And this means that Jesus Christ is our resurrection and that he is the death of death itself. No wonder then, a major theme that we find in this text is the theme of faith. Because we who now read it as post-resurrection readers, we are called to believe in Jesus and to live by resurrection. Because Easter has burst upon our lives, just as the full meaning of who Jesus is and was for Jesus' disciples is not illumined fully for them until Jesus is raised from the dead, so the meaning of life is now illumined for us now. I wonder how many of us really think that death and sadness are the really credible things in life. They're the really tangible, the really believable things. We think of death as the ultimate reality and resurrection as an elusive and vague wish. But you see, the opposite is the case. The very opposite. The resurrection of Jesus is clear and all else must be interpreted in its light. Without it, nothing makes sense. In the resurrection, death is in retreat. A vanquished enemy and life, glorious life, pulsating life, bright and wonderful life is ours through our risen Lord. That is the reality that determines for us the meaning of life and of death and of our futures as well as our present. And that calls for your faith in this risen Lord who at this stage in his work raised this little girl from the dead. Now I've told you, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the object of your faith who saves you. But we would have stronger faith, wouldn't we? Does that mean that we will never struggle? Oh, you know better. Yes, we will struggle. And I think we struggle most pointedly with timing. We struggle most pointedly with timing. Stopping to help this woman with a flow of blood must have seemed disastrous to the father of a dying daughter. 
Now, you just have to read the text as, as a father. What would you have thought, Dad? Jesus, will you come and heal my daughter? She's near death. She's almost at the end. Yes, I'll come. So he's going along the way. Something happens. He stops. He says, who touched me? He takes the time. He, he, he speaks with the woman. And the father must have thought, what a disaster. Come on, Jesus, he must have been, have been saying within his heart. Come on, don't you, don't you know my, my daughter is near death? If you don't come, then all will be too late. She will have died. Timing. You see, the time is of the essence, but God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his time is not our time. Do you remember in John chapter 11? That in John 11, Mary and Martha send to Jesus to tell him that their brother Lazarus, whom he loves, is sick. And so the text tells us because he loved them, he waited until Lazarus died. Why? Because he would raise him from the dead and show more fully, more remarkably, more deeply, more wonderfully the glory of God. Delay tried Jairus' faith, delay strengthened Jairus' faith, and delay made God's glory more clear. So true faith will say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. True faith will struggle. And I want to bring an illustration of that that I think is rather profound and powerful. You've heard me mention A.T. Robertson from time to time, one of the greatest Greek scholars that has ever lived. His Greek grammar, 1,500 pages or so, I use it frequently. Well, he was also a great family man. And he had a daughter that he loved deeply, whose name was Charlotte, who I think was about, <clears throat> about the age of this daughter in this text, when suddenly she was taken. Suddenly she died. To what text do you think Dr. Robertson would turn? This text. And his biographer says this. His attitude toward the Bible was a strange and beautiful admixture of erudition and childlike faith. Those who were in his home on that heartbreaking day when his beloved and unusually bright child, Charlotte, was taken can never forget his grief and his sorely tested faith. He was stunned beyond all words. He walked about the house helplessly with his open Greek New Testament in his hand, reading the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Grief-stricken, he said to his weeping friends, he raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? Like multitudes of Christ's disciples through the ages, the learned scholar, along with the rest, came into a new fellowship with the Christ of Gethsemane and learned to pray the same prayer, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You see the scene? Dr. Robertson grieved, stunned. His friends all around him rather reminds you of this scene, doesn't it? But there's a difference. 
He's walking around with his Greek New Testament reading about the raising of Jairus' daughter. And yes, he says, he raised Jairus' daughter. Why not mine? Here's the point. True faith may and will struggle, but the object of your faith is secure. Timing again. God will answer Dr. A.T. Robertson's cry. Charlotte will be raised God always keeps his promise. And you may and will struggle, but I call upon you, I challenge you to struggle with a Bible in your hand. I challenge you to struggle with the Word of God in your soul. I challenge you to struggle with a Bible in your hand and your heart fixed upon the promise of God. And then the words of verse 36 will become more yours and mine. Do not fear. Only believe. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.